Hi, everybody. Thanks for being here. Um, make yourself comfortable if you want to sit or get a chair or a stand or whatever. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm Nathan. I'm trained as a composer, um, but I've kind of adopted a visual arts practice as well. I live in Denver now, but I was born and raised in Western New York, south of Buffalo. Um, this was me. Um, I learned music from a young age. I was interested in piano, but my parents mostly forced me to take piano lessons until they told me that I could stop taking piano lessons. And then I actually then started practicing every day. <laughs> just, it just happens. Yeah. I was also kind of the black sheep of the family because as you can see from my t-shirt, my family owns a Harley Davidson shop. And I was the sort of artsy musical one of the family, but I still appreciate that kind of the biker life as, and maybe, it, you know, gave me an edge or something. Uh, this was me as a teenager. I even played the harp. Um, I had very long hair, I think from the biker tradition. So always, always kind of a little bit of a rebel, I suppose. But when I got to college, I, really immerse myself in a lot of different kind of musical styles that I'd never experienced growing up in the countryside. Um, people like Pauline Oliveros was a big mentor. She is an accordionist, uh, recently passed away, but her practice involved deep listening. So lots of like immersive sound and really experiencing what listening is like. Um, I learned about Pamela Z. Who's an amazing um, composer, performer. Um, she grew up near Boulder, Colorado, but lives in San Francisco now and does motion activated sounds from a little box and sings. She's incredible. Um, and then of course our famous resident honorary Alaskan, John Luther Adams, composer, made a lot of music about um, our state here and all of its landscapes and cultures and his ideas about landscape and music really influenced me. But it was actually around, oh, here's also George Crumb and George Crumb's dog. <laughs> um, George Crumb sort of became famous for these um, music scores, which don't look like your traditional music scores. And I picked up a lot from him about that. Um, Later, they became called graphic scores. So you can still interpret them as music, but a lot of the elements of the music score are kind of free. It just depends on what the composer kind of wants to include in the music. What's flexible, what's notated, you know, how much do you need to know to make this music happen? So I'm like absorbing all of that. And then I, worked a little bit at this installation art museum called Mattress Factory in Pittsburgh. And I worked with a visual artist to make this my first kind of graphic score that replicated the sounds of a roller coaster in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. So all of the groups that would perform this, and it was premiered by this group here, which is a convention of roller coaster enthusiasts, <laughs> which yes, does exist. Um, they get together, they nerd out about roller coasters, they watch roller coaster footage, 
and like have camera videos and they compare each other's like coaster rides and so I made this piece that replicated a specific roller coaster but using the sounds of your voice so all together it kind of recreated this experience that was really kind of transformative for me it was about a specific group of people it was about a specific roller coaster and a place that people loved and it brought in my musical training so it wasn't just me putting a string quartet on the stage that then you know gave you some music it was really things that were important to people that i could then kind of process in my own way and give back to them after i did some grad school studies and did the roller coaster piece i lived in iceland for a while this was the recent volcanic eruption in Iceland, which was amazing. I'd never seen a volcano in person before. Um, the power of nature, as they say. But Iceland, and maybe actually Homer in my one afternoon so far here, <laughs> over the month I will become more familiar, but have some similarities of, you know, landscape and geology, um, ecology, things like that. And the fjords of Iceland, their language, the culture really inspire me. And I've made a lot of work about Iceland. I think one of the things that really drives me is when I go there and when I make work, being an artist there and being a musician is like second nature. So in the, in the States a lot, I'll say that I'm a composer or I'll say that I'm an artist and people will immediately say, well, what's your day job? Or they'll say, like, what kind of music do you make? And then that's sort of the end of it. You know, that's the end of the conversation. But in Iceland, they don't even bat an eye. Like, you say you're an artist, and they say, oh my gosh, are you going to show any work anytime? Can I come and hear your work? What does it sound like? It's, it's a legitimate practice that then I just felt so validated for doing the work that I do, that even my work which seems a little bit out there sometimes for the classical music sphere, was very mainstream for Iceland and people would just come and enjoy. And I was like, oh, this is the way that I need to make work. I need to make it for me. And somehow it will resonate with other people. It, it shouldn't be that I'm um, trying to create something that's, I don't know, mid-level interesting or accessible for people. Generally, if I make it that's meaningful for me, it's going to feel resonant to other people in some way. And if not, that's okay too. You know. um, I made this piece in Iceland with an accordion. I'm not a very good accordionist, but I made it inside a fish silo. So they, it's an old, um, like a herring, factory and they emptied out the silo and now it's just cavernous space inside so i made a piece that used the reverberations inside of the silo
it's interesting to make a piece where the echo of a space could be up to 10 or 12 seconds long. So you can't make anything that's short. Everything is long. So you have to think about how one idea connects to the next idea and how that can unfold over time. I also did some performances in Iceland. <laughs> this is me sticking my head in a rock. Um, but this is a, a special rock of East Iceland. Uh, in Seyfisfjörður, there's this um, stone that has sort of rolled off of the mountain centuries ago. And it's said that this is sort of a castle of elves, that the hidden people of Iceland live there. And you can actually go and tell them your secrets and they will either try to make it real or they will keep your secret for you. Um, kind of a wishing stone in a way. So I went and took this long hike and then told the elves um, my secrets. Made a little performance of it as well. Um, they're not very big. This, the one hole that I'm sticking my head in is only head big, like a bowling ball. So the interesting thing though, is it has features that the mountain doesn't have. So either over the centuries, the waves have actually crashed up against it and worn bits out of it, or it had some kind of aggregate at the bottom that has kind of eroded. So it, it feels a little mysterious as to why it's there in the middle of a cow field. Yeah. Right, which is probably why it is a home for elves. Yeah. No, this is like a singular rock. Yeah, it's sort of a monument in a way. I can't tell you. <laughs> Um, this was a graphic score in my version of the George Crumb graphic scores that I did based on a waterfall that's in Iceland. So these straight lines going down are basalt columns, and then you have your waterfall to the right. type. But I basically assign different musical components to the shapes. So I might say to musicians, like, the long lines are going to be long tones and our short kind of crunchy lines might be sharper short chords. Then when you hit your waterfall, that, that'll be flowing, um, cascading melodies or maybe scales down from the high register. So reading it left to right, kind of like you'd read a, a sheet music or a book, you can actually interpret it as music. And so I've given musicians quite a few of these scores to interpret. So I've done a lot of work singularly, but I've also done work on the big scale. And this was one of my favorite pieces, Mountains and Rivers. This was a commission for all of the LGBTQ choruses of Colorado. And there's 437 singers that I had to write a piece of music for. And so we, they, the only place that they could gather was the balconies of a parking garage for this performance at festival. So I made the music score line up. So each choir would have their own different floor 
And so we'd rehearse each choir separately. And then I had to put it all together. Um, pay no attention to how sweaty I am because I'm very stressed. <laughs> but then I also had to conduct my own work, which I am not a conductor really. But I think the piece turned out really well. This is a little clip from it. That was a, a monumental day there. It was a monumental thing. Yeah, yeah. It really, it was incredible to see all, all of those people gathered together to support each other in voice. That the Colorado, you know, we wanted a piece about the majestic mountains and the sunsets and whatever, but it was really about all of those people together supporting each other singing. You know, it's more than the sum of the parts. And they also wanted like what the TV shows call choreography, like, <laughs> like choreography. But I said, no, 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 I can't do that. But I will give you streamers. <laughs> so the streamers were a really nice touch. Yeah. I think my final like aspect of my work is a lot of explorations about my own identity as a gay man, as a queer person, I'm really interested in fetish and kink and subculture and how that weirdly ties in with being a classically trained composer and artist. So I've made a few works of exploring things like power and communication and trust using music. This was a piece uh, called Tame Your Man. And over the course of the work, the pianist actually gets tied to the piano, so it becomes harder and harder to play my music over the course of the work. But it's all choreographed, so this bondage artist here actually has a whole kind of music score that he follows according to the movements of the piece. And it becomes actually very... Um, it seems like it's going to be uh, kind of violent, or like hard to watch or tense in a way, but it actually ends up being kind of romantic and sensual and 
hopefully kind of transcendent in a way, like a spiritual experience in a way. You see these people having to interact so closely together and communicate with each other like, okay, now I'm ready for my hands to be this way. And now I'm ready for my hand to be behind my back. Can you do it safely? And, um, you know, with tenderness, basically. And this final image is a piece from Mattress Factory. Again, I did an installation there called You're Not the Boss of Me. <laughs> and I tied up a harpsichord and rigged it so that it's actually suspended from the ceiling as if, as if it were going to like fly away or something. But I wanted to kind of rationalize my my understanding of classical music, which has so many rules and so much like of people telling you what you need to do. Like this note needs to go here. You need to show up on time. You need to follow the orders of your composer versus kind of the freedom I feel as an artist of, no, I can, I can break rules. That's kind of my job is to like find where there's, there's moments of, lightness and play and discover relationships with people. And that feels a little bit in, in conflict with a lot of like cold, hard classical music. So this was my, um, my reconciling with it. And I think I won, you know? <laughs> yeah. But I also, I made a little soundtrack for it that had the actual harpsichord I played, I tuned it and then recorded it and then strung it up. So I'm really curious as to what Homer is going to bring me uh, these next couple weeks. I do so many things because I love bringing sound and music into or exploring how it connects with the world around us from like, I've done pieces about the movement of the gases in the sun to making graphic scores about volcanoes and interviewing LGBTQ folks to make music from their lives. And I'm really curious what Homer brings. One of the things I think I'd like to explore with it are these little bells that I brought with me. Um, they're called saucer bells and they're so easily portable, but they sound really beautiful. Um, that perhaps I'll take them out into, you know, remote places or play them, or maybe make a soundtrack or maybe have other people play them. Maybe I can invite people in for some piano music or singing or
drawing music, but I think I'm going to let the next couple of weeks, you know, guide me as to who I meet and, you know, what sparks interest. Yeah. They're called saucer bells. They, I call them poor man's crotales because they're like, a crotale in the orchestra is like $200 and this is like $25. <laughs> so it lets me kind of travel with a nice little bell sound. Um, and they come in a whole set for all 12 pitches. Um, so it's a kind of interesting experiment of like what could I take that's musical maybe out into nature and yeah kind of collaborate in that way yeah. that's all I have for you but I'm very open to questions if you have any how did you find him or how did you decide on the start of this year how did that come about? oh that's a good question I think I found Benel actually through call for entry it's a very junky website that is very hard for musicians to operate because they always want images. I'm like, no, but I make sounds. I need sound files. Um, but I think I may have applied almost five times. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but we thought at least three, at least three. three <laughs> yeah and I kept getting to like finalist level you know where you're like always the bridesmaid or something and <laughs> what, what this time allowed us to do because there was this backlog you know of applicants and, uh, and uh, we, what we said was let's just take the people who have really risen like this so there was a handful of people and we've been scheduling and so that's enabled like a little bit more densely um, scheduled residencies. Um, so three people this month, for example, I mentioned that there is a screenwriter arriving tomorrow. But yeah, so yeah. it's really exciting. Yeah, so I'm honored to be here and I hope that maybe I'll be seeing you soon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so I have a question. How, how, how are you uh, bringing your music to the people? Because I think about that fish globe, I think like Stuart Dempster does a lot of stuff like that, but nobody's ever heard it. You know, it's, you know, how do you actually get out? You do videos, so, you know, what, what are you doing for that? Yeah, it's a, it's an odd one when I have to strike a balance between, like, the quality of people who are, can experience something versus, like, the quantity. <laughs> I sometimes I'm able to release things. You know, I have a couple albums. I do have, you know, a classical group that I'm the president of on the board, so we're able to, like, market a little bit more to larger audiences but it is it tends to be a very site specific crowd you know and that then just grows over time of people who kind of keep tabs on me yeah but every you kind of have to go out to where you're going to do something like that yeah and sometimes you know like inside of a fish silo it could only hold 10 people <laughs> so that's the audience that day um but i hope that they walk away with a a meaningful experience out of it, you know, more than maybe the mountains and rivers people could, you know, attend. A lot of people can attend that and they have a huge audience base for that because there's so many people involved and they all bring their families. So I'm wondering about that, that waterfall score also. Was that, was that for an ensemble or was that solo player? Or, or do, you have, do you have parts of different people? And how does that, how does that actually work? 
It's technically for an ensemble. Sometimes the graphic scores like this one come with like a little key right. and it'll give you help of like, this one could be for three performers. It's maybe about eight minutes long, something like that. Some are much more open-ended. It's some are more fixed. Did you work with George Crumb? I never did. I, yeah, I missed him by a year for my doctoral program. Yeah. But yeah. But his dog is great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Nathan's contact information is posted with his statement press release of okay. this walk here. And I mean, he's very warmly encouraged people to reach out and engage with him for ideas around collaboration and performance. And yeah, or if you want to have coffee or go for a walk or yeah, whatever you'd like. Are you going to be doing performances? Yes. In two Fridays from now, we have a live performance here that I'll be making some work for, and that, that will also be on the radio. Yep. That's right, that's part of Benel's Third Friday, Benel Arts by Year, with the collaboration with KDPI, Jeff Lockwood comes down here with production equipment and broadcasts live, but also the seated audience can come in and attend that. So, um, and I think the, the installation itself, as it evolves, this month will have some kind of performance element. Are you going to be yeah. composing new works to do in here at home? Or yes. You're not going to be rehashing No, it's new works for here. Yes. Yep. Well, maybe we'll have an a end of the month gathering or something too as those things develop. Oh, yeah, closing. Yeah. Yes. And on April 8th, Nathan Hall, Jesse Egner, and Karen Frank, who arrives tomorrow, will all be on um, one of our um, semi-weekly conversations that will be available to watch later on YouTube and watch live if you wish on Facebook where we talk about their processes, their objectives for the residency, and why residency is so important. Thank yeah. you so much, Nathan. Thank you. Yeah.